and we could see the flashlights coming across uh, as the two guys were running. And we heard the, the police yell to, to stop. And then as my fiance opened the door to see what was going on, that's when the shooting popped off and, and casings were landing at her feet. Hey gang, John Korea is so proud to be a brand ambassador for Heckler & Coke Pistols. They're, they're not a sponsor per se, but they have helped us out so much. The whole team, we just drag our HKs around the country to training, to the ASP conference, and we just know that no matter how poorly we treat them, they're going to go bang whenever we need them to. They're incredibly reliable, and they're a joy to shoot and paddle magazine release. Please visit them at hk-usa.com hk-usa.com and tell them the Ask podcast sent you. Well, already, gang, welcome back to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am yet again your host, Mike Williver, and I remain your favorite former Fed. In a recent show, I did mention that um, I was one of the good Feds. My agency um, had its inception, by the way, just a fun fact, um, right at the founding of the country. It didn't come along in the 1900s like some of the other agencies you may be familiar with that uh, maybe shouldn't exist. Anyway, with that said, this week's guest, a new friend of mine, his name is Mike. Mike lives in Nevada. Um, Mike was on, Mike and his fiance were on the uh, main channel, whether they like it or not, uh, recently. Uh, it was July 7th <laughs> of 23. Uh, John and I did a video about a Reno, Nevada police officer or police officers who got in a really bad spot. And uh, Mike and his fiance came into that story, as we'll discuss here shortly. Um, he is a network engineer and a former military. Mike, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, it's it's a pleasure thanks to have, have you. Me on. Absolutely. Once again, you know, for, for folks like Mike writing in to tell their stories, we wouldn't have a podcast. So uh, they are the real heroes here. So talk to us about your experience prior to this incident and even prior to the military, were you someone who was into self-defense, firearms, martial arts, anything like that? Was it something that was kind of in your headspace? Oh man. Yeah. I've, I've been doing martial arts since I was like 10 years old. Um, so I, I actually had two black belts, uh, one in Kempo, one in Judo. And then, um, you know, I, I, I grew up, uh, late seventies, early eighties. So once the UFC came out, that was it. I was all about right. martial arts and everything. Yeah. And right. I've been shooting out in the Hills since I was a little kid too. <laughs> Very good. So I didn't, I did allude to the fact that you were uh, prior military and you and I obviously talked a little bit before we hit the record button. And I happen to know what the job is that you mentioned that you did. And it's a pretty cool, frankly, badass job. Uh, you want to tell us what you did and what branch of the service you were in? Okay, so um, I was a forward air controller in the Air Force. Um, we were, uh, you know, it, it's it's the Air Force doesn't really know you exist. Uh, we work with the Army, and the Army can't tell you what to do because you're Air Force. It was all enlisted. We didn't have career officers, so man, it was it was great. Yeah, so tell, nothing better. Tell the folks briefly what it what a forward air controller is and what that person does. Because I happen to know because I'm a nerd. But what does that mean, uh -huh. and what do they do? Because it's pretty, it's pretty harrowing. It's not, it's not a doesn't. It sounds like someone who maybe goes to the end of the runway and like waves flags around or something with, from the description. <laughs> yeah. But that's not what it is. So tell tell the audience what that job is exactly. Yeah, no. Basically, you uh, you know you kind of sneak in behind enemy lines, um, usually with army or marines in our case, and um, call in airstrikes on enemy targets. So uh, yeah. warheads on foreheads. Yeah. So were you, were you ever, as they say, danger close? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, mostly in training though, actually okay. we're danger close in training more often than not. So you're, so you're calling an airstrike. So you're basically infiltrating behind enemy lines, which is inherently dangerous, obviously. And then you've got to go along with your Marine or army 
uh, compatriots go find where the bad guys are and then figure out exactly what those coordinates are and then call that in to have someone drop bombs on people. Absolutely. Yeah. It'd either be, you know, a, uh, you know, a 20 mile hike or a fast rope or a parachute in, um, and set up on, you know, some hilltop and then you're glassing for two or three days, uh, waiting for the right target or the right thing to come across. And for those folks who don't know, glassing for, is a, part. is a, is an insider term for looking through some sort of optic, like a pair of binoculars or a, a monocular or a rangefinder or something like that. So, uh, Correct. We, we also discussed briefly that you had gone in initially to be a PJ. Now, I think it's another job people may not have. Everyone's heard of the SEALs. Everyone's heard of Green Berets. Um, everyone's heard of Force Recon, but a lot of people don't know what a PJ is. So just for fun, even though that wasn't your job, just tell the folks at home what a Air Force pararescue jumper does exactly, because it's pretty it's pretty awesome. Oh, man, they're so cool. It's It's got to be one of the coolest in the Air Force. So um, pararescue actually has quite a few different types of jobs, but mostly it's rescue. Uh, they'll do anything from ocean rescue to mountain rescue to, um, you know, jumping in and saving downed uh, pilots, you know, in, in, in combat zones. You know, almost like you saw in Black Hawk Down, you know, the mm -hmm. guys that went in to, uh, to get the guy that, that was downed. You know, it's really kind of a PJ type job right there. Yeah, they're pretty cool. They're, think um yeah think air think think coast guard uh rescue diver but way more badass okay moving on um yeah. <laughs> much di different kind of danger let's put it that way so you're a network engineer that's one of those jobs again i think people throw the term around network engineer and i think people think they know what that means but what exactly does that mean oh man okay it's the opposite of what i did before so okay. uh instead of you know being all cool and jumping out of planes and flying in helicopters and stuff uh Instead, you, you sit in a big data center with a laptop and you program routers and switches so, uh, you know, the Internet can communicate. Right. <laughs> so I assume after your departure from the Air Force, you continue to train. I assume you're a CCW holder in Nevada or at least or is it constitutional carry state? Uh, no, Nevada is not. You know, Vegas really controls the state politically. So um, you've got Nevada, which as a whole is is pure red. They would love to be a constitutional state. And you have Vegas that controls it. Right. Um, and and that keeps us uh, checked a little bit, unfortunately. But I am a CCW holder and have been for a while. Yeah. So what's that process like in Nevada? Is that, do they make it overly burdensome or is it kind of standard issue, like what you'd expect the process to be like? You know, it's it's um it's a one day course. Uh, or a day and a half, I guess. Um, but you go in, you do the paperwork one day, you go shoot the next day, it's half day. And then it's a shall issue state. So, um, and all the sheriffs here are great. I mean, they are, I don't know a sheriff here that isn't pro 2A um, that won't get you your card as quick as they possibly can, unless they're just seriously backed up with paperwork. But uh, um, they're all, they're all really cool. They're great with open carry. They're great with uh, concealed. They, it's a, it's a really good state to, to carry in. Yeah, the Las, Ve the Las Vegas Metro PD, I know, is pretty a pretty switched on agency. They're very well-trained, very professional, and get their mm -hmm. job done. Is there – you may not know this, but I should look this up. Is the chief of police of Las Vegas also the sheriff? Does that sound right to you? Or they control both the police? No, no, it's not. Two, okay. two separate positions. Okay, interesting. All right. And it's the same in Reno, too. You know, you have your Washoe County sheriff, and then you have your, your chief of police. Okay. Very cool. So the incident at hand involves you and your fiance and it involves the Reno PD. I opened that video with a bit of a joke about Lieutenant Dangle and his uh, his short his short shorts and how the real Reno PD wears what we call special pants. Have you heard of the special pants brigade? Yeah. Okay. You know what that is. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got the reference. Okay. Very good. So with with that said, tell us about the, the incident at hand. You 
you were staying at this apartment complex. You can explain why you were there temporarily or not. It's up to you. Um, but walk us through what you were doing and how you and your fiance were sort of alerted that there was something going on uh, in the complex. Sure. So um, <laughs> we'll kind of come back to this and I'm as a part of the story in a little bit, but uh, uh, this always happens on laundry day, man. Um, I was between, I met my fiance. I was between houses. I was selling one in one area in Nevada, moving to a different area in Nevada. And so temporarily I stayed at my fiance's apartment in Reno, you know, for just a few months, six months or something mm -hmm. max, I think. But anyways, uh, we through there, the, the, the police are through there quite a bit, you know, and you get to see, you become familiar with some of them that are there quite a bit. And so in this case, um, officer two that we saw in the video, um, we, we got to know him and he would stop and talk to us. And, you know, the, the big joke was, uh, time to move out. You know, every time he come through he'd say, right. man, time to move. And we'd say, yeah, sure is. Sure. Um, but he's, he's real cool. And, you know, we, we'd see him from, from time to time, but that day, uh, we were going down, as I said, to do laundry or I, it was earlier in the day, I think maybe take out trash or something. But, um, my fiance had come across some police officers downstairs and they were, kind of, you know, they, they were checking something out in the parking lot. There seemed to be a lot of activity. We didn't really know what was up. Uh, and then she went down to bring the first load of laundry over. I was going to meet her over. There. I was still kind of packing things in another basket. And she came across a group of police standing around the parking lot at this point, And they were looking at a shell casing and some blood. That's definitely not a good uh, sign, so, by the way, for those who don't know. Shell casings and blood in your parking lot are bad. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> and and it didn't seem to be a big pool or anything, you know, just looked, you know, just a little bit, something that, that showed you something happened. And so they, they were discussing that a little bit. They weren't really sure what had gone on. We found out later. We can get to that. Um, but she went to go start laundry. And um, again, she saw officer two and he gave her the comment, <laughs> you know, time to move. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> and so she came back up uh, and then we went back down again together to the laundry room and they had already cleared out. They weren't there, but she was kind of telling me about it. So uh, we started doing laundry and um, she went to, she went to go throw out something in the trash. I think she had to go to the trash can or you know, she forgot something and had to run back and get it, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And as she was going to the trash bin um, lights rolled in on her real quick headlights. Came zooming up on her. And again, it was police. So we knew that they were, something was going on. They were looking for somebody. And she came back into uh, the laundry room and, you know, said something to the effect of, uh, you know, the, the cops are coming. And we knew kind of some, some, uh, some dirt bags in the, in the neighborhood there. And we thought, okay, they're probably looking for one of them, you know, mm -hmm. who knows. Uh, and, it was kind of funny. We were, you know, we were just talking about how we're going to be moving out pretty quick. And she was sitting up on the, the washing machine. And right when she, we were discussing where to move and how to get there. Uh, we saw, we looked out the window and kind of at the same time, cause motion caught our eye. And she said, Oh, Hey, there's two guys. And it was these two guys that we had kind of seen, but weren't super familiar with. And they had, uh, they were at the base of the stairway and, you know, they had long guns and backpacks. And not long guns slung, which is, you know, still not a big deal in Nevada. Like, you'll see people walking around with, with long guns. It's not not a huge thing. There's a lot of hunters and right. um, enthusiasts and everything out here. But you can just kind of tell by posture. You know what I'm talking about being a former Fed. You know, you, yeah. you can tell. And these guys had that look. Yeah, um, as, a, as a Supreme Court justice the base once of the said. Stairway. 
I'm sorry. Yeah, as I say, as, as an analogy, as a Supreme Court justice once said when asked how how he can tell pornography from, you know, a, a naked painting from the 18th century of a, of a woman tastefully done, how could you tell it's pornography? Because I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. So I assume you, these guys are like, <laughs> okay, something's up. These guys are not here to uh, to knock on doors and talk about Jesus. Yeah, that's exactly right. So these guys kind of start trotting off through the uh, through the courtyard there, you know. And mind you, this is a couple buildings away from where we stay. So, of course, she she walks to the window, or no, she walked to the door. I think she was walking to the door. I walked to the window to see what was going on. And as we were walking toward the door and window of the laundry room, then we saw the flashlights following them. You know, first officer one, and then officer two, uh, who was it's hard to tell from the video, from the, the cam footage, but uh, he was pretty close on his tail. He wasn't very far behind officer mm-hmm. two. Um, and we could see the flashlights coming across uh, as the two guys were running. And we heard the, the police yell to, to stop. Um, I saw it, you know, out the window. And then as my fiance opened the door to see what was going on, that's when the shooting popped off and, and casings were landing at her feet. Uh, wow, as they so were popping back and forth. So you guys were that close. So, uh, yeah, I, I did see the first per, um, turn, turn gun up and fire. Wow. From okay. the window. And if you look in the police cam video, it's kind of funny. You can see my dumb head in the video going like this in the window looking. <laughs> it's not, it's not the worst response. I mean, I, I would, I would be wide eyed as well. Um, so real quick, before we continue, what was it like? So if you're if you're going to be in a shooting, generally speaking, you will experience auditory exclusion. If you expect a bad thing to happen, your body will just do that. And you don't hear you don't get the full sort of effect of a gunshot in the wild without hearing protection. But you weren't necessarily expecting it. So what was it like hearing those gunshots? What went through your mind in that moment? Well, not much, to be honest, right back to training. I mean, it was right back to military. It's like I was I was back in and and I knew I didn't have a rifle on me, but I went right to my, right to my carry and it's out. And, you know, I'm, I'm by the window with my carry going like, this was probably isn't the smartest having cops running around there. Um, but, uh, at that point, you know, once the firing started and I'm in the window, we backed off, you know, we were hiding behind washing machines and she's covering one door and I'm covering one window, you know, opposite directions, making sure the guys don't try to come in and, you know, escape the cops that way. So you guys are both armed. Yes. Yeah. She's a concealed carry holder as well. Okay, can I ask what you're running? What kind of gun and holster, or if you don't mind? Yeah, it, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I took my big gun, you know. So, okay, let me set this up just a little bit. It was laundry day, right? Right. I'm in my pajama pants, just pajama pants, and I have like a light t-shirt on and my little um uh my coat over me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I just pocketed. It's a Springfield XDS. Okay. So I have it just pocketed, you know. That's my 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 little carry, uh, with the extended mag, so seven rounds. Um, and then I have my combat boots on with no socks. So I'm in pajama pants and combat boots, no this, socks. This is a good uh, look. This might, ca- this might catch on. This might, this might sweep the nation. Combat boots and <laughs> to, to get with, it, with an XDS in your pocket. I mean, that's funny. Well, I don't care who you are. That's just funny right there. So it, it, it's, <laughs> at some point, um, you guys had to come to realize this officer had been shot and shot pretty badly. But how long did you wait exactly? I, I haven't watched the video again. After the gunshots stop, what's your cue? How long did you wait before you go, okay, this officer shot and shot badly. We need to go out there and give him a hand. You know, in my mind, we were listening. So we were hunkered down and listening. 
and I was listening for what the police were were yelling or or commanding. Right, you know, I was I could still hear them both, so I knew that they were they were both alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, we couldn't really tell Officer One was injured yet. Uh, and I walked to the door, and I opened it, and you can barely hear the audio in the in the cam footage. And I yelled out, "Are you okay? Do you need help?" And he didn't hear me the first time. And then officer two looked over and he saw that it was us and he knows us. And he said, yeah. And that's when you see him say, yes, come out here. Okay. Cause it was us. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we came out and we had, you know, guns in hand, um, uh, came out and I went down to do a uh, tourniquet first or check that out. And obviously my fiance was providing cover at that point, which shortly after that, it doesn't show up. We ended up swapping. She was the one that ended up doing all the tourniquet work and checking them out and looking under the vest and doing all the medical. And I ended up providing most of the cover. So it's funny that they show me uh, doing the tourniquet work when she did more than I did. I was so frustrated. They, the first belt I got tossed was one of those like dress blues uh, web belts, right? Where it's got the little alligator teeth and it's just a dumb little um, web yeah, belt okay. with the, the tip. And... So I thought, well, if this is what I got to work with, you know, we'll see what I can do. He wasn't, he wasn't dripping real bad. So, you know, I looked at it and a gnarly wound, but it wasn't, it was surprisingly just not dripping super bad. So I had one hand just putting, applying pressure, doing what I could to get pressure on it. And then I'm looping the belt around and trying to get it. And I finally got it in place and I go to pull and the buckle just flies off. Oh man, what a nightmare. And that's when I called him over. I I knew the guy and this is the third armed person that's there. um, Younger guy, you know, this guy's early twenties. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I said, man, you, you know, you're gonna have to find me another belt. Your, your belt broke. I need another belt. And I'm asking the, the cops still, you know, you guys don't have any tourniquets. None of you guys have, have tourniquets. Right. And I'm feeling his pockets just in case he had one stashed somewhere. Right. Um, unfortunately I didn't have one on me in my, my pajamas, but, uh, yeah, it was, that was, that was pretty frustrating. And then, my fiance ended up finding a better belt, a full leather one. And we were just going to puncture a hole in it with a knife, you know, squeeze it tight and, and try to try to set the, the leather one. Um, she started working on that and checking under his armor and putting a service pistol aside and that kind of stuff, just kind of laying things out. Cause at that point, more, more police were arriving. So, uh, and I was the one providing cover. I was doing the, the dumb work. Does, he, <laughs> does either of you have like an IFAC like in your apartment or, or on you or in your car or anything we, like that? We do, but not on us. So we have them in our cars. We have them in our packs upstairs. We train quite a bit. Um, And of course, you know, this is the one time when our pajamas, which is when everything goes down. Right. I I remember a conscious decision. You know, I'm I'm usually a big carry. She's an always carry like Mm -hmm. she she's funny like that. You know, like she she will not leave her pistol anywhere where myself, you know, I'll, I'll calculate it. And if I'm going to walk across the front yard or something and, you know, go to the car and back, I'm like, eh, okay, you know. Whatever. Well, I'll tell you what we're not going to um, do. I can, already, one... I can already hear the commenters. Why didn't you have his eye? John and Mike say, always have your IFAC with you. Listen, give the guy a break. He's in his, he's in his combat boots and his jammy pants doing, doing some laundry. You can't be this idea that you can be switched on 24-7 and always be prepared. Like, you do your best. You know what I mean? So I, it's, yeah. if you have that ISAC 99% of the time, it's going to happen that 1% you don't. It is is the Murphy's law of of potential shootings. So I I think one of the lessons I want to talk about here is it doesn't really apply to you is, and I mentioned this in the video, if you are going to assist police, if they are in a bad spot and need your help, whether it's a knockdown, drag out fight or a shooting, um, 
it didn't apply here, but normally I would say make sure you make your intentions very, very clear. In fact, I have a state trooper coming on who watched your video and told me a story of him being in a knockdown drag out on the side of the freeway and having some big giant dude show up to help him. But at first he wasn't sure, is this guy here to help or to pile on and continue to hurt me? I would normally say, make sure you say things like friendly, I'm here to help, you know, keep your hands, you know, open so they can see you're not armed or not in your case. Um, before you intervene, because they might not know what your intentions are. But in your case, you you knew these officers, they knew you, and you actually said, yeah. hey, and he called you out. So that's kind of a moot point in your yes. case. And, and we would have absolutely done that. I didn't leave the laundry room until he beckoned for us to come out, yeah. you know, because if he said, no, stay there, we, we would have stayed there. Um, you know, he's he's on scene and he's the one doing it. So it's up to him. I'm afraid we might have skipped over for those who haven't seen the video. If you haven't seen the video, I recommend you go watch it. Again, it came out on July 7th of 2023. Uh, as we're recording this, it's now um, July 19th. Uh, cry, I lost my train of thought. Um yeah, we harped on that in the video, but it, it didn't apply in your cases, it turns out. We also harped on the fact that none of the officers had uh, a tourniquet on their person, on their body. And this this video really reinforced why that is so important. Had they had it, it turns out there was two people present that were perfectly willing and able and competent and trained to apply that tourniquet properly. And that would have um, that would have prevented uh, all that frustration on your part with Izod Lacoste crappy belt buckles flying in every direction as you're trying to save this poor officer's life. Can I ask real quick, um, do we know what these guys were wanted for? And do we know uh, what what the what these officers thought was happening? Do we know that at all? So um, these guys were real low-level um, drug dealers. You know, it didn't really matter. They were slinging weed and whatever, you know, which I think that's pretty fairly normal in a lot of our cities now. Right. But on top of that, um, previous felons, and they were manufacturing 80 percenters uh, up in the apartment. Explain. I know what that means. For others. Explain to our audience what an 80 percenter is. Uh, so it is, you know, an 80 percent lower. I'm sure most of you know if you're going to watch this podcast, but 80 um, percent completed um, receivers for rifles and pistols. And okay. I don't know which they were doing rifles or pistols. I'm not sure which, but I know that they were completing firearms uh, for the purpose of selling to others. So do we know this is, and I, like, I think that's what they were really, yeah, it doesn't sound like this was a pre-planned op by, by detectives or anything. It sounds like this was just a call they got. So do we know specifically well, why they were called? Was it just, Hey, there's two guys hanging out with ARs not slung or, or do we so know? Now, now, now we get to circle back. Right. As Saki says, um, so, the incident that happened in the parking lot with the shell casing and the blood. Um, these guys had left some kind of party earlier. Uh, we found this out later. Uh, went, went back to, to their place and there was an argument over parking. So there was a dispute over somebody being uh, in their parking space or, or it was somebody that had followed them from that party who they had an issue with. And uh, in the parking space, they got in an argument, and the the perp that died, uh, he was the one that um, he shot somebody uh, in a vehicle there, like okay. through the window. Yeah, and I'm sure it sounds like there was a whole confusing series of events for the police to figure out what the heck had gone on. I assume they got a, they got a call. He, somebody was shot. Was the victim already gone by the time they got there? Uh, no, no, they, they ended up being okay from what I understand. And I don't even know since it was, um, you know, the way those people hang out and they end up being like frenemies and they won't rat on each other. And, you know, it's, it's all that kind of environment there. I don't even, I don't think anything happened from that. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I think, um, the important lesson here, really, the, the thing that sticks with me is have your gun with you, even if you are doing laundry, if you're outside your home, uh, even if you're in your home, but especially if you're outside your home, especially at night, there's always that possibility. If you have a way of carrying it, carry it. Um, because if you guys don't have your firearms on you, you're still cowering behind those, you know, washing machines and, and dryers because you have no way to fight back and you're not able to be effective and helpful in the situation. Um, and, and, you know, just having your pistol on you at all times, especially outside the house, is critical. I had a friend, a law enforcement buddy of mine in San Diego who was at home. People made fun of him because he wore his gun around the house. Um, and mm-hmm. sure enough, he's out back. He's down in the South Bay of San Diego flipping some burgers, you know, in the backyard. And some guy was running from the cops, jumps over his fence, is standing right there in front of him. Uh, not armed, as it turns out, but... You know, it, it can happen anywhere, uh, even even uh, even in your own backyard flipping burgers. It's a possibility. So do we know- that's how my fiance is. And I was kind of joking about, you know, we live in a real uh, rural area. And I mean, she could be out weeding the yard and she'll she'll have her carry on her. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 funny, but she's probably right. I mean, you I know, mean, better to have it and not need it right than to need it and not have it. That's that right. really applies there. So do we know um, the the two suspects? Were they both shot by this officer? Okay. Yeah. Th- this is the, um, so officer one, who was the one that was shot, he, so you have, you have perp one and perp two. Now, now perp one, uh, he's the one that died. Perp two as the larger guy that went down on the sidewalk. Um, officer one got about maybe two to three shots off. I think before officer two was firing, from a different area of the courtyard. He was kind of behind and adjacent to him coming across Mm -hmm. with his AR. So officer one had his pistol, officer two had his AR. And I'm not sure who hit perp one. I know that officer one hit perp two and took him down with his pistol first. Um, And then perp one, I think officer two actually hit perp one um, first. And I'm not sure if, if officer one hit perp one. Um, I, I did see, uh, we were right next to it and the body, he had, um, at least two, uh, right center chest, uh, AR. Um, so, uh, and I think he was, he might've been legged by the pistol. Okay. So the officer that was injured in this incident, do we know how he's doing? I know you won't name any names obviously, but, uh, do we, are you able to get updates about his condition? How is he doing? I, I wish I could, but uh, but I can't give his name, uh, or I don't that's want fine. to. No, uh, he's doing well. So he went through 20-something surgeries. We've seen him along the way. Uh, we were helping RPD on their case uh, against him if he was going to take it to court, um, the, the surviving perp. And so we've seen both officers uh, since then. And Officer 1 is doing better and better. He, he got shot uh, left knee right under his kneecap on the front. Um, exited through the back right, right on the tendons and bone, man. Um, so when I was first assessing and, and leaned his, his knee up and I was looking at it, there was a, um, there was a racquetball sized chunk gone, um, from the back right of his knee. Mm. And, uh, then when my fiance was treating him, she said she, she had to get him to lay his leg flat or, or something. I, I can't remember what she was doing or maybe getting the tourniquet on, um, she lifted up his leg and his lower leg was, was wobbling. So the, the bone was shot through. There was a lot of fragments. Um, 
And last we saw him now, he is on one crutch. So I'm sure he's doing even better now on one crutch, but walking on both legs. Nice. Uh, and recovering better. And they said he's going to make a full recovery. They think it's going to be a while, long road, but he's going to make full recovery. Yeah. You know, we, people kind of use the lines, throwaway lines. Like he's expected to make a full recovery, you know, like a day after the thing happens. And it's like, well, I would yeah. think people realize frequently what that means exactly. And what that entails making a full recovery from some gunshot wounds can be a years long process. Um, it can take a long time and, you know, 20 something surgeries, I've had a couple surgeries. I can't imagine twenty something, and probably in pretty rapid succession. I'm guessing they weren't like they were months apart. These were probably within days of each other, and so a, a, right. a, a long road for him. Do we know? Is it too soon to say whether or not he'll be able to return to duty? Does he want to return to duty? My understanding, I, he he's been on the force for for close to twenty years, if not over twenty. Um, he does want to come back, and I think they have him right now in a different position where it's you know not as physical, obviously. But uh, I think his goal is to come back on the force uh, and and keep working it. This guy, he's a he's a tough guy, man. He's great. He's a sergeant and uh, just a cool guy. Yeah, we 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 inducted him into the special pants brigade immediately after seeing the video. So, <laughs> so listen, I don't I don't want to um, excuse me. I don't want to leave anything out. I think we cover all the covered all the high points. But was there anything about this that we didn't mention or delve into that you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, no. My, my only thing was that uh, I wanted to make sure that officer two got a little bit of recognition there because he was the one that, um, perp one that turned first with his long AR. The other one had an AR pistol. Uh, but with the long AR, I think it was officer two that really brought him down. And I wanted to make sure he was recognized because, uh, man, he was running and shooting. He got him twice in the chest, wow. uh, and, and took him down. Um, and he's a, he's a heck of a guy. He's a, he's a tough old guy. <laughs> so yeah, if we were hard to him in the video, I apologize. I stand corrected. Um, uh, and, and I'll talk to John about that as well. Now you tell these two, uh, officers the next time you see him, they have an open invite to come on this podcast. If they ever want to, it could be next week or two years from now. Just let them know, pass it along. No pressure whatsoever, okay. but I'd love to talk to them as well. Um, you know, we said a lot at the end of that about how exciting, how excited we were to see citizens get involved and we're i feel like we're seeing more of this we had one recently a video that won the main channel with a chp officer who was just trying to move somebody along off of a median who was doing whatever he was doing but he's not allowed to be there and ended up getting into a knockdown drag out and like three californians right that's so crazy three californians you know got out of their cars and went in to help him so i think the important thing is here is you know if you're going to assist police you know, our situation here today was a little bit unique and as they, you know, they knew each other and he was beckoning. So there was no doubt in his mind that the police wanted him there. Just make sure you're careful about your approach and make sure they know you are a friendly um, person and really gauge, you know, this situation was pretty obvious, but in some other situations, you're not sure um, if they need help or want help. So try to ask, try to make your intentions clear. But at the end of the day, it was so heartwarming to see you and your fiance just rush right in there without a second thought, uh, and do what you had to do to help. I think we need more people like you. I appreciate you writing in to share your story. And, uh, I look forward to this episode coming up. I'm sure people are going to love it. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I, I got to say it, it makes it that much easier when you're working with a great org like Reno. I mean, Reno PD is really professional. They're really cool. They're just great guys. So of all, really are. so in closing, of, of all the agencies to have a funny half an hour TV show made out of TV show made out of why Reno? What do yeah, they do to deserve? Be Reno. 
It's a very funny show, by the way. I'm not going to lie. The, the the funniest version of that show, if you remember, is the one where there was like a like a bunch of winning lottery tickets were all issued in error. Like everyone had a winning ticket for like eighty million dollars, and they and the officers come into roll call one by one, quitting their jobs and telling everyone to go f themselves. My favorite episode of all yeah. time. All right, we're getting far afield again. Mike, I really appreciate you writing in and letting us know uh, and sharing your story. Give your fiance, me and John and everyone else his best. And uh, thanks again. Okay. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. All righty, gang. Welcome back to The Gutowski File, starring Stephen Gutowski. He is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of the Weekly Reload podcast. Now, normally beforehand, I will ask him, Stephen, do you remember who was on your podcast this week? And (laughs) frequently he'll say no, and we didn't do that this time. So I'm wondering, Stephen, can you remember who was on the reload podcast this past week. Uh, actually I do. I think mainly because I messed up his name when I was introducing him. Oh, I hate Even that. We had had the conversation right before going on to tape, but his name is JD to And he is a contributing editor at reason magazine. We talked about study. I think we mentioned it on this podcast a while back that shows uh, some Americans are reluctant to share the fact that they own a gun with researchers. And we talked about some of the implications of this. Uh, He had a really good piece on it. uh, And I thought he was one of the more interesting voices out there writing about this. So we had him on the show and I think it's a worthwhile episode. I think you'd be surprised too at how many people uh, this study implicates in being secret gun owners, shy gun owners, I guess you could say. It's like a quiet conspiracy, but that no one's talking about. Um, you just say implicate. I thought that was a strong term, folks. I don't. I don't not. I don't agree with it at all. That. So this week we're talking about something that's kind of breaking in this moment. We're recording this. It is. Uh, it is Tuesday, August first, as we record this. And there's some breaking news. You haven't quite published an article yet. So tell us what's going on, Stephen. What is the exciting news? Yes. So the Fifth Circuit panel has now issued a ruling in the Biden bumps. Or sorry, not bump stock. That was the previous one. The Trump uh, the pistol, yeah. and that was Trump. Yes, mm. the, the Biden's follow-up, uh, I guess you could call it the pistol brace ban. Uh, the the ruling is that the the ban violates the Administrative Procedures Act, not the Second Amendment or the first. This wasn't a. We've talked about this before on the show, but the, these are actually not challenges really based in the Second Amendment or in the Supreme Court's Bruin methodology or anything like that. These are actually uh, sort of administrative powers cases and Mm -hmm. they found against the ATF. They found that the way that the ATF tried to implement the pistol brace rule was unlawful and uh, didn't comply with the uh, congressional law that oversees how these agencies are supposed to enact regulations. So uh, that is going to be sent back down to the lower court now for a final injunction to be issued. But the previous ones, this was the case where they had issued injunctions for members of the Second Amendment Foundation, the Firearms Policy Coalition, and the Gun Owners of America, as well as like customers of Maximum Defense and some of these others. So was, there was a lot of injunctions already issued in this case, and those will remain in effect. So the ATF can't enforce the pistol brace rule against any of those people, which seem seemingly would include millions and millions of Americans. But uh, And then we will get a final injunction that may in- incorporate the entire country at that point. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to see it. It's another 60 days before that happens. Oh, so this is far from over, right? This isn't, this isn't an ending. It's just sort of a waypoint in this whole It's not saga. over in the sense that 
you know, you still have to wait for that lower court to issue its injunction that that says how whether it's going to cover the entire country or just people in the Fifth Circuit, which is like Texas and Mississippi, or what's going to happen. It seems you read the panel. I just finished reading the the opinion in the case. It seems like they're sort of hinting at the fact that a, a nationwide injunction, while uh, not a standard thing to do, would probably make sense in this case because it implicates these uh, gun gun rights groups that have members from all across the country uh, and they're already in theory protected from enforcement all across the country, not just in the fifth circuit anyway. So uh, I would expect that a nationwide injunction would be coming in the, from the lower court in this case, but we don't have that yet. So there's two things I think our listeners might be wondering right now. One is, is there some sort of great, wave of short-barreled rifle crime that hasn't been reported about? Is this is this an actually a problem that exists? I, I don't think it is, but I, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think the ATF's perspective on this and, uh, you know, certainly the president's perspective is that the these braces, while approved by the ATF, certainly, uh, repeatedly over the last decade, um, as not being subject to the NFA, the National Firearms Act and registration and tax and all the stuff that comes along with that, which is a, a lot of stuff, right? It's the same way we regulate machine guns or silencers and uh, slash you know, sound suppressors, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them. Um, and and uh, that they're basically a loophole. That's, that's how the ATF looks at this, even though they're the ones who approve these as non-NFA uh, firearms, or at least when you they approve the configuration of having one on there with a, a barrel that's less than 16 inches on your AR pla- pattern gun, right? They, that counts as a pistol instead of a rifle and, you know, avoids all that additional regulation. Right. Um, and so they you know, the, the way they look at it is that millions of these have been sold through this, uh, this workaround that, that they don't like. And they think people should be subject to the same rules as if it was uh a stock on there instead of a pistol brace. Yeah, I, I guess um, as far as crime. Yeah. I, I don't know that they're, they, the attorney general has cited uh, mass shootings where um, pistol braced guns were used. I think Dayton was one of them. Uh, although I personally, I would also note that uh, I don't think that the pistol brace or the length of the barrel played any actual significant right. role in that in those shootings, you know, these are, you're talking about shooting into crowds. There's not really any sort of practical advantage to using a shorter barrel on a rifle in those situations. In fact, if anything, it's reducing the muzzle velocity of the round. Uh, but really you want a shorter, right, a shorter barrel for like maneuverability inside of a building or something. And, and I don't think we've seen any uh, right. mass shootings where that's been a factor know, sort of the, yeah. And, yeah, and, sure. and yeah, I don't think it's really something that comes up a lot in your more typical street crime. Yeah. I, I did 30 years in law enforcement. I've never encountered a short barreled rifle in the wild that was being, you know, we found, I think we found some ones that had been stolen, but they weren't like used in a crime or anything specific. Here's my next point, And this is one I, I think is even more interesting. We need the legislative branch to come up with some, with some legislation. That's what they do after all. That's what they're named. Uh, some legislation, to make it so the administrative state can't just change the rules midstream. I mean, the idea that, first of all, I hate executive orders, unless there's a really good reason for it. I like things, I like my laws, my laws and regulations to be passed through the legislative process 
by our elected representatives, not done by fiat. I didn't like it when Obama did it. I don't like it when Trump did it. I don't like it when Biden does it. So there should there needs to be a mechanism by which the ATF or the executive branch says, okay, this is an acceptable thing that you can do and or have. And that once they've said that, you know, there needs to be something beyond another executive order or another, you know, another decision by an administrator that now it's not okay. Now that people have gone out and spend their money and time to purchase this stuff and it was completely legal to make you ex post facto now a felon or, you know, someone who's run afoul of the law just seems patently un-American to me. Am I wrong? Well, uh, I think you probably like this ruling a lot then because that's kind of exactly what they're saying in here. You know, there is a law that governs this, right? There, it's the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, that tells agencies how they're supposed to go about, you know, uh, promulgating regulations, right? How they're supposed to come up with new rules based on legislation that's been uh, enacted by Congress. And they're supposed to go through a whole process. And the biggest uh, catch that the Fifth Circuit, the biggest problem they had with this particular rule was that they didn't follow those procedures properly. You're supposed to put together, you, you might remember that the ATF did go through and, and the rulemaking process when they did this, when they put together their, their change and how they were going to interpret what constitutes um, you know, a short barrel rifle or how pistol braces should be considered under the law. They put together a whole proposed rule. They put it out. They, you know, there's a comment period you're supposed to have where people can, you know, submit their their questions or their their comments about the rule and say the problems they have with it or whatever. And the agency is supposed to go back and forth with the public, uh, with with the interested parties. People are going to be regulated under this, and they're supposed to, you know, make tweaks and changes and try to adjust the issues or what have you. And at the very least, they're supposed to be giving warning to those. Uh, to those affected people about what's coming. And much of the Fifth Circuit's ruling in this case focuses on how the ATF actually did this practice. Because if you go back and read their proposed rule that was that was put out to be commented on, and they got hundreds of thousands of comments, largely negative, almost exclusively negative comments, huh. on this proposed rule for all the sort of reasons that uh, you know you might... Uh, come up with some of the stuff we've said here on this this segment. But the problem is then when they issued their final rule, it didn't look anything like the proposed right. rule. They changed it completely. Uh, they, their proposed rule had this whole point system where you could look at the gun that you have and you could, based on a couple of uh, objective standards like the surface area on the back of your brace or the weight of your firearm or the length of pull. Now, even that wasn't really completely uh, objective because there were also several like subjective standards in there, like whether it could be held with one hand and fired accurately, things of that nature. Uh, well, it sort of would depend on whose arm is doing the holding, I suppose. Right. right? But, right. Uh, but regardless, it was much closer to like a, a point system where you could actually come up, look at firearms and try to make some judgment. Uh, a lot of the criticism of it was that it was still too subjective, but they threw that all out and basically just implemented a, we'll make up what we decide. You know, obviously being a bit reductive and simplistic here, you can go and read the rule yourself or read this ruling and right. sort of lays out the five factors that they use. But most of them are, are entirely subjective. Like whether the community, how the community is using this gun is a factor of whether or not it's an SBR, how, 
uh, how its um, marketing seems uh, to the ATF, right? Uh, those those are factors in the new rule, and the ATF itself estimated that there were, I think it was ninety nine percent of the braced guns out there would be um, SBRs under the new rule, and they couldn't they actually in court in this briefing for the Fifth Circuit. They they despite uh, claiming that there are pistol braced guns that would not be classified as SBRs under the rule. They actually didn't even provide a single example of one. And some of the examples they used in the proposed rule, there was there was a gun they showed in the proposed rule that had an SB tactical mini uh, pistol brace on it that they said would would not be an SBR. And under the new rule, the final rule, it was an SBR. And they didn't explain anything as to why that changed. Um, and so, you know, and they, the court went through and said, you did this process wrong. You, this is a substantial impact that you're making on people. Uh, what you're doing here is a legislative rule. You're, you're sort of exactly. writing your own uh, rules that go beyond what Congress has allowed you to do. And that's why it's unlawful and, and you can't go forward. They didn't consider the other challenges. There were Second Amendment claims there's even a First Amendment claim against this rule. They they just said we can decide this on the administrative power of the ATF and find that they didn't do it right, that they went too far beyond what their uh, constitutional limits are, and therefore the rule can't stand. So basically at this point, the ATF is Lucy holding the football, and the rest of us are Charlie Brown. Uh, assuming the football will still be there and then it's not there by the time we get to it and we go uh well as as they say ass over tea kettle um i i don't like um i'm not a big fan this is me now this is me editorializing leave steven out of this he's a real reporter uh, i don't like the administrative state making rules especially rules that that go completely against the previous rule they they said okay here's what you can do and they're like jk lol now you can't do that anymore now it's this other thing and it just causes um a further erosion in the public trust, uh, like so many other things, you know, John and I do the badge cams and sometimes the officers do not act in good faith and I have to call them on that. And it's just one of those things. Um, we expect consistency from our government officials and when we don't get it, um, that erodes that confidence and erodes that relationship between the people and their government. And that's unfortunate. Anyway, that is the time we have. Stephen and I are both very busy today. Well, I'm very busy today. Stephen just lives a life of luxury running his little business there. That's, uh, that's totally right. So, folks, do me, do me a favor. Go over to thereload.com. That's thereload.com. And carefully consider getting a membership. Stephen and his crack staff, uh, they rely on their membership uh, dues and fees for, for their important work. And it is important work. No one else is in that lane and getting done what they're getting done. So uh, please go over there and give them a look. Uh, at the very least, check them out on YouTube. Leave a comment. Leave a like over there for them so they know that you're checking it out and you like what they're doing or if you don't like what they're doing leave them a comment and a dislike i don't care do whatever no. you want <laughs> no, don't do that <laughs> all right and as always every week Stephen has the last word absolutely 